fellow podcasters, welcome to episode two of Cousins on Cinema. I'm Michael Kenny here with my co-host, John Salem. We're cousins from Cleveland, Ohio, and we share a similar interest in film. John's an English and philosophy major at the University of Notre Dame, and I'm a senior at Benedictine High School with an interest in pursuing a career in filmmaking. We made this podcast to discuss our love of cinema and to analyze films we watch. Without further ado, what's on the agenda for today, John? Today, we're going to be taking a look at Martin Campbell's Casino Royale, a 2006 installment of the coveted James Bond film series, starring, of course, Daniel Craig as James Bond, Eva Green as Vesper Lind, Mads Mikkelsen, definitely mispronounced that, as Le Chief, and Judy Dench retaining her role as M. For a lot of people, uh, certainly for me, it was my first experience with James Bond. Um, you know, it's it's the first Daniel Craig James Bond. It's the first, I would say, realistic James Bond they made. I know you're more of a Bond fan than I am, certainly, of the older ones. But um, yeah, I think this, this marked a turning point in the franchise for sure. Uh, would you agree? Definitely. You know, when I was watching this film again, I wrote down that it's just a new era of Bond altogether. Craig is simply a completely different Bond than any Bond we've ever seen. You know, he's he's both suave and fit, very fit, very athletic, much like Connery in that in that respect. But the two deliver their lines really differently. I'd say that Craig plays a much more athletic Bond, and they have him run and jump around much more than those prior to him. You know, you didn't see Roger Moore <laughs> jumping around and... You saw a little bit of it from Sean Connery, but you really didn't see it from guys like Pierce Brosnan or I believe Timothy Dalton or Lazenby before him. I think Craig yeah. Craig brought a completely different bond to the screen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things I underlined when I watched the opening. Bond has to work for it in this for sure. Because, you know, mm-hmm. I've seen my fair share of older Bonds and it's really just him effortlessly and coolly, you know, making his way through these areas and just dispatching enemies. But, you know, you're, what you're seeing here is very much a younger Bond. It's, you know, I mean, he's a rookie. He's just gained his double O status in that opening scene. And immediately it's clear that something's different. First of all, it's in black and white, which I think is a really brilliant choice because it shows that, you know, black and white is obviously, it kind of does, that thing goes in your mind, like this is older. And so... You know, this is obviously, it shows Bond's first kill, which isn't a very Bond-like kill, ironically enough. It's, um, I mean, Bond, James Bond doesn't drown dudes in bathroom sinks. <laughs> um, right. And that, that's not something, it's a very brutal way of dispatching his foe. But at the end of that killing scene, he, you know, hits him with the classic, you know, James Bond whip around, camera down the barrel of the gun, blood goes down, themes opens. So I think it's a good way of saying, this is a different Bond, but it is the same character. Because I do think this character, while he is different, does keep many of the trademarks of the classic Bond. I, I totally agree. Just speaking on that intro you were talking about, you, you talked about how it's black and white. They go back and forth between a murder that he had, that he had carried out beforehand. You know, you, you, uh, you mentioned the drowning and... He is in conversation with actually uh, a secret agent for MI6. This guy's telling him that he has to have two kills in order to earn double O status, which, of course, he gets from actually killing him. But what I really took away from that black and white scene, especially when he's with 
the man he's conversing with about ob- obtaining his double O status. I really thought that it was very reminiscent of film noir because it's it has the detective feeling those the types of angles there were there were low angles pointing up at the man that he was speaking to and it eventually got closer and closer as they cut back and forth to their faces and i just i felt that it was really reminiscent of the film noir era of the late 40s and early 50s when it was most prominent i thought that was a really good touch like you said it's definitely a new era of bond but they want to give us that feeling that it is the same character that's being portrayed it's still james bond although there were there were there's never been a black and white james bond film they want to reiterate the fact that this is the same old bond whether we change the actor or not yeah absolutely and i think that of uh, that first scene i think does kind of bring up one of the main themes of the movie which is kind of james bond's soul this is very much, I would say, at least the most human bond of any of them. And the idea of job obviously calls him to be able to kill with discretion, but not with regret. And, right. you know, and this James Bond is that. I mean, his face, he's not hes not like having a mental breakdown, like killing these people. He's cold, he's calculated. And like his, and his last line of that scene, you know, the guy's like, if it's any consolation, it gets easy. And then James Bond puts one in his head and says, yeah considerably which is uh, i mean first of all awesome line second of all it just it goes to show bond at this point already has very little soul left he he's already kind of like like m says he's very much a blunt instrument he knows how to kill and he knows and he's okay with that and he knows he needs to be but uh, what this movie does do i think it it, it kind of challenges that and says you know should it be okay to kind of put someone through this, use these human beings as kind of like machines to like go and basically air out your dirty laundry. And I don't think the movie answers that question. I think maybe it's arguably none of the Bond movies have answered it. I totally agree. I feel the same way. I feel that this Bond that they put forward in Casino Royale is a much more imperfect Bond than ever before. The guys we know and love, you know, Sean Connery, Roger Moore, they had the bond that was perfect. He didn't even really need to calculate, really. He just kind of did it by instinct, and he was always successful, much like the Hemingway hero. If he didn't succeed, he would still be cool under pressure, and he would bounce right back. But most of the time, you would see Sean Connery and Roger Moore's bonds succeed. But right from the get-go in Casino Royale, you see... His boss, M, is pissed at him for what he's done. You know, so this is just definitely a different bond than we've ever seen before. He has the same cool, suave one-liners that every Bond's ever had. But I think even this film has really dove deep, I'd say, I'd say more deep into conversations that end up very entertaining, you know, especially with with uh with Vesper throughout. I I wrote I wrote down that. The first, the first time he, he talks to Vesper, he basically insinuates that they're going to be sleeping together. And she says, she asks, am I going to have a problem with you, Bond? And he says, no, don't worry. You're not my type. She says, smart. And he replies with single. You know, so it's just these back, this back and forth with Vesper. It was really smart writing, I think. No, I absolutely agree. I love Bond's conversation with the two women in his life in this movie, which is M and Vesper. I mean, mm-hmm. M 
I, I feel like those are really the only two people, them and Lashif to a lesser extent, that can really match him for wits. I love his Agnifea conversation with Vesper on the train. She really does get him. He like does his little analysis of her and like breaks her down. Then she turns around and does that right on him. And and I remember she she asks him, how's your lamb? He said skewered. And then adds one sympathizes because he's kind of been skewered by her. I think that's such a, it's amazing because he's admitting defeat, but sounding very cool while saying it. And then there's that that thing with the dinner jacket. I already have a dinner jacket. And then she said, I sized you up the moment I saw you. And it's, she both sized them up for the jacket, but also sized them up and kind of figured them out. And he's not used to that. He's used to, you know, Bond is impossible to read. That's his thing. He's like, no one can understand what's going on with him. And she did instantly. And he's certainly attracted to that and kind of taken aback, I think, at the same time. I totally agree. I think Daniel Craig did really well. After their first conversation that they ever had, I believe it was on the train, they they had this little back and forth where they secretly were analyzing each other. And when she walks away, you feel like she, just like you said, she's really the only person that can intellectually match Bond that we've ever really seen in a film. George Lazenby in, in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, you know, he gets married to the Bond girl in that film, but you don't feel nearly as much of a connection as you do between Vesper and Bond because she's incredibly intelligent. Someone that we we would not expect Bond to even be with, to be quite honest. I mean, he says it himself, you're not my type. And no, I mean, it's it's redeeming too. It's, and, and it paints James an interesting way because one aspect of his character that I think is absent from past Bond films is his arrogance. And, you know, it makes sense, though, right? Why wouldn't he be arrogant? I mean, he's literally the best at what he does, bar none, and, like, no one can replace him. So it would make sense that he would be a little arrogant. And that arrogance, I mean, this is a good segue to one of the primary motifs of the movie, which is, of course, poker. That arrogance gets him scorched at first. I mean, he loses $10 million against oh, the Chief because yeah. one thing that's interesting, like – Bond's excuse for losing to Lashif, I think what really happened was that Lashif just beat him and Bond just couldn't accept that, that he got beat. And I mean, and honestly, it's, it was only after he kind of overcame that and was able to like really not only gain self-confidence back, but also lose a little bit of, maybe not lose confidence, but lose that arrogance. That was only then was he able to kind of beat him in the poker match and then ultimately win the day. Definitely. I think that the back and forth between Lashif and him is very little to do with the writing as much as it is just the acting because they really didn't speak to each other much at all throughout the film. They might have exchanged, I don't know. Five, six lines. Right, five, I'd say between five and ten total lines over the entire course of the film. But that's how it is when it comes to poker anyway. You're looking across the table and you're trying to you're trying to judge the person that's the best poker player besides yourself, of course. And he, of course, finds Lashif's tell, and he tells Vesper and Mathis that. But then, of course, later on, Lashif shows the same tell, and Bon believes he's bluffing, so he calls his bluff and loses all the money. And when he has that conversation with with Vesper outside, telling her. Well, okay, now I need that $5 million that you said that you might put forward if 
I was a worthy candidate, essentially. He gets really upset when she tells him, you know, I, I can't I can't do that. But this this again, like you said, is because of his ego. You know, one of one of her one of her best lines is when they're about to get on the elevator and go to their hotel room. And she says, take the next one. There isn't enough room for me and your ego. Yeah, no, that, that is a great line. I love that conversation with Vesper out there because he's just you can kind of see the manipulative stuff going on in his head. It's like he, he, he makes his half-assed argument. It's like, well, if you don't give me the money, you're letting the terrorist win. And, and Vesper calls him on that bullshit. It's like the idea that he cares about winning that game for anybody else but himself is kind of ridiculous. I mean, he wants the win. That's who he is. He's embarrassed that he lost and he wants another shot. And, you know, that's everybody who's ever played a hand of poker understands that. I mean, you know, when you lose, you just want to play more so you can win it back. And especially for a guy who's probably never lost at poker because he is very good at analyzing people. It, it takes, you know, kind of this hand of God, the CIA to come in and say, CIA or FBI, I guess, I'm guessing CIA. And he was like, we'll, we'll, we'll float you the money so you can beat him. And he does, but only after, you know, getting back with Vesper and kind of recuperating their relationship. And yeah, I think it's, it's certainly, Lashif as a villain as well is, he's certainly not comical. I mean, he is to a degree, right? Because he has the actor, first of all, terrific casting. Oh, yeah. He looks evil. Like, oh, and he, and he has, and whoever did the makeup is very good. Cause I'm guessing he doesn't really have lost an eye. No, in there. Mads Mikkelsen, no, no way. And he weeps the blood and it's just, it's comical, but it's never like one line I love from him is it's only from a damaged tear duct, nothing sinister. It's like, I feel like that's kind of the difference between the villains in these Bond movies and villains, the other ones, the other ones, it's like, they're supernaturally evil. And like, they'll just have like evil scars and stuff that like, they like got taking candy from a baby or something stuff like that i think this is very much a down-to-earth bond villain who i mean is very weak and fragile and you see that a lot throughout the movie you know i totally agree he much like this bond has flaws he bets the wrong way essentially he plays the stock market wrong because he assumes that he's going to be able to control it but of course bond thwarts his plan to blow up plane that he plans on blowing up. So he loses, Lashif loses uh, something like 101, 110 million dollars, something like that for his clientele, which are terrorists that he funds. And that's the whole reason for this poker game in the first place, so that he can, because he thinks he's the, he's the greatest poker player on, on God's green earth. Yeah. So he thinks he's just going to win, beat everybody out at a $10 million buy-in. And, you know, essentially win all this money back because he's he himself, as well as Bond in this film, is incredibly egotistical. He thinks he's the best. He thinks nobody can touch him or come come anywhere close, to be quite honest. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that scene with him getting manhandled is I mean, you never see that in a Bond villain in a, in a previous Bond movie, like a Bond villain before James gets his hands on him, getting his ass kicked by this dictator him being completely at his mercy. That's like, it's realistic, but it's, it's just so different. And 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 the James and Lashif dynamic, well, you did reference this very short-lived and it's not a very long one. I feel like it's almost more developed just because it's like a hand of poker. They're indirectly acting one another. You know, Lashif hires another bomb maker to blow up the plane. 
So Bond has to go through this crazy escapade to stop it falling off. So the chief loses his money and he is in, at threat. And then eventually they finally kind of fully collide in that, in a great scene with Bond on the chair and the chief's whipping him in the testicles. And first of all, it's a brutal scene. Absolutely brutal. I mean, it's just not something you expect out of a Bond movie. You know, Bond's always, even when Bond's like, you know, the classic Bond strapped to a table with the laser coming at him. Right, and gold not, you know, getting his balls whipped by a dude who's like, I'm going to cut until you, it's a, it's a brutal scene. And I think the thing is like Bond remains cool under that pressure. And the only time where he kind of breaks is when he see, hears Vesper screams and you really kind of feel that it's like, he cares way more about her safety than he does his own. And I think that caring is earned throughout the movie. I don't think it's just like he cares about her for no other reason than she's the love interest. I think that's really earned in my opinion. I completely agree. You know, you, you said it better than I, better than I even could. I actually took a note down right on this scene. And I, I wrote down that Bond's always been very cool under pressure and every film he's ever been in, he's always been very cool under pressure. Like you mentioned, Goldfinger, he, he has the laser essentially coming towards his testicles mm-hmm. where he's going to be split in half, but he's completely cool under pressure and he talks his way out of it like Bond does. But in this one, he realistically screams when he gets whipped in the balls. Like, I assume every man would. Oh, absolutely. You're getting, you're getting beaten by a bullwhip. But of course, like you said, he's always cool under pressure and he says... I've got a little itch down there. Would you mind? Then he gets hit right in the balls again by this whip. Then he says, no, no, no. To the right, to the right, to the right. And he's essentially crying throughout this because of how painful this is. But he keeps his composure and he starts laughing after he gets hit again and says, now the whole world's going to know that you died scratching my balls. And of course, this only pisses off the chief more because... He does have it right, honestly. He knows that even if he kills Bond, MI6 is going to accept him with open arms for all the information that he can give them, regardless of whether or not he's going to pay off these terrorists. But he wouldn't be going to all this trouble if he didn't want the money back. That's the thing. He's very egotistical. He thinks, hey, you know, I'm I'm always going to be able to do this my way. I'm not going to have to go to MI6 and essentially plead for my life. I'm going to be able to get back all these guys' money that I blew, blew on this uh, on this stupid stock. But yeah. he is Absolutely. very egotistical. He thinks that he's the best, much like Bond. But honestly, to a more harmful effect than Bond is, and even more self-destructive effect than Bond. I mean, when you think about it, all all the, all the all the southern I don't remember. It was like Uganda or something. The all the Uganda. Let's say Uganda. Ugandan terrorists asked for was like a no risk reason, like like let's use it says a reasonable rate of return on their money. And she was like, okay, fine. And then he do- goes and does the riskiest bet you can literally possibly do on a stock. Yeah, he's like, I got the money, do it. And then he's like, that's a dumb idea. And he's like, it's fine. But obviously, he has his plans, and he's going to, you know, blow up an airplane, which is very. Uh, you know, I mean, M even references it. It's very 9-11 adjacent, but um, right. yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, that, that, that scene is great because James, I would say he's more in control when he's getting 
whips in the balls than he is when he hears Vesper screaming. Like that's the only time you see him like actually afraid, I would say. Like he's that's, oh definitely. Absolutely. He's like he hears her screams and he's he like he looks over and he's like and it's like it's almost and then of course Mr. White comes in and kills the chief. And so Bond's words do end up ringing true. I love this. I think it's an underrated scene. And it's, I, I took a look at the book that this is based off. My roommate actually had a copy and I read this end bit because it, it's based off a book by Ian Fleming, Casino Royale. Right, like the, first, the, first, the first James Bond book ever. Yeah, Casino Royale. And it's like kind of Bond sitting in this wheelchair with this thing over his lap. It's like, it's very, he, he very much seems like he's, neutered almost like i mean first of all the amount of testicular trauma he must have endured any man would be afraid for his you know manhood at that point certainly huh. and yeah. you kind of see that like he you know he's he's in a wheelchair he can't do anything it's very emasculating position and i think in the when he goes for that that second swim and he's kind of i mean in the in the actual book he does it naked and he gets an erection in the book, but that obviously doesn't happen in the movie and they can't show that in the movie, but um, it's very much kind of him reclaiming his manhood from this kind of close brush. And I'd really do like the, I, I, a lot of people complain about, they say this movie after, like after the poker scene basically kind of goes downhill, which I to a degree, I agree just cause that poker scene and the torture scene are brilliant. And I do think that the rest of the movie is a little bit rushed, but I don't think I would go as far to say it was bad. I think it's a great conclusion to both Bond and Vesper's character, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say so. I think that I think that the poker scene is just so iconic that nobody even really wants to, to sit through the rest of the movie, even though there are important plot points and honestly good plot points where... Mm-hmm. Obviously, you find that Vesper has been essentially toying with him all along. You know, then then you get to wondering, you know, did anything Vesper said ring true? Was she being truthful to James? Does she actually love him? Does she really want to be with him? Or was she simply using him for this money? And then as soon as she gets the chance to take it out, she does. And, you know, she's, according to M. At the end of the film, she has her own lover on the side. She doesn't, she's not just Bonds, even though she was, she was his only one. Yeah. At least, at least that's our impression at the time. Ironically enough, Bond gets kind of cheated on in that way to a degree. I, I don't think it's implied that necessarily she was two timing because we knew she had the boyfriend because of the whatever love knot and Bond did right. that too. And she takes it off. I think she does move on, but you know, just because you break up with somebody doesn't mean you want to see them killed, which is why she got the money in the first place. Right, right. So I just wanted to dive into something else. We were talking about how different this Bond film is than anyone we've seen before, and I I thought about this really right when I started the film. Um, I wrote I wrote in my notes that this is. This is more of a film than a than really a Bond film. This is this is just a, a a well a well thought out film. You know the screenplay by Paul Haggis, Neil Purvis, and Robert Wade, three three screenwriters that had worked together 
actually on Bond screenplays before this one. I think it's it's really it's it's just really good. The dialogue is spectacular. You know, some of the best dialogue that we've ever seen coming from James Bond himself and from his surrounding characters. But this, I, I wrote down that this film has the same theatrics as the usual Bond films and possibly even more so when it comes to the action and fight scenes. But it also dives deeper, like you were talking about earlier, into what Bond is like as a human being, you know, what he feels, what he really thinks. It, it really takes away that robotic, perfect feeling that you got from the Bond that Sean Connery and Roger Moore played. But this isn't something that really Daniel Craig has anything to do with. This is all due to the writing. Absolutely. Yeah. I actually have, I think, sorry, I think I do have a good line that kind of ties in. After Bond loses the big hand, loses all the money, he goes to the bar and he asks for a dry martini. The bartender says, shaken or stirred? And obviously that's a reference to Bond always saying, shaken, not stirred with his martinis. But Craig looks at him and says, do I look like I give a damn? And I think it's very much, it's, 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 it's definitely a jab at the audience. Like this isn't going to be a Bond who is kind of almost a slave to those stereotypes. It's like every movie, Bond has to be with a girl, be with the most beautiful girl, and he has to, you know, drink and look cool while doing it. It's like, this is a Bond that doesn't care about that as much and is very much human. He's not just going to recite lines the same exact way every single movie. And though he does have those moments in this movie, certainly at the end and a couple other times, like 007 reporting for duty and stuff like that, it's it's not, it's it just seems more in character than it does, I think, in previous movies where it's like, you're waiting for him to say a line you know he's going to say, and then he does. Like you said, it's very much robotic, and I think... I feel the same way. During that scene, after he receives his drink, which who knows if it's shaken or stirred, um, he, he right away picks <laughs> up a knife and starts making his way towards the sheaf because he's just about had it after he's yeah. lost all this money. But he's stopped along the way by a U.S. spy who offers him money to keep playing if... He can, he can basically uh, take take the collar in Serpico terms on on Lashif, take take Lashif home to the U.S. rather than giving James Bond him. Although the three screenwriters, you know, Hagis, Purvis, and Wade, had already worked together on Bond screenplays in the last 10, 11 years since I think Goldeneye in '95 which Martin Campbell also directed. I think that they wrote, they wrote a bond that nobody had seen ever. They wrote that this imperfect bond, like I mentioned earlier, this, this bond that actually showed us emotion, actually showed us love and compassion. And really something that we had definitely never seen was outright anger. We saw, we saw bond get very frustrated and feel like giving up i think that him going towards the sheep with the knife was him simply giving up he didn't feel like he could beat him at that point he just felt that you know he was he was basically screwed he felt like he had had to go kill this guy in order to essentially win in life yeah i mean he bonds a sore loser for sure which is that's the thing 
in all these other Bond movies, you don't really get to see him lose. So you wouldn't really know if he's a sore loser. But he loses. He gets he gets smoked by the chief. And he it's almost it's as childish as trying to murder somebody can be. It's like it's like oh it's like almost the international spy equivalent of taking your ball and going home. It's like it's like, all right, you know what, if I can't beat you in this dignified poker game, I'll just stab you with a knife, which I kind of shudder to imagine what his exit plan there was. And anyways, it's like, at that point, he just got that reality check. Like, he needed to accept help. He needed, I mean, it's, I mean, there's very much a bigger thing there. Like, a British agent is accepting money and help from this American agent, which is kind of humiliating, you know? You're, you're one country's secret agent. You don't want help from the CIA. But, I mean, he takes it, and he kind of takes his humble pie, and he's like, all right, the only way I can beat this guy is kind of by accepting outside American help. And it's, you know, it's certainly humiliating, but he does it and he kind of grits his teeth and bears it and ends up, I mean, that last poker scene is just absurd, right? I mean, the odds of a straight flush are like something like one in 6,000 or something like that. It's like, it's the, it's the second best poker hand there is. And it's, it's a great scene, a beautiful scene. It's very much, because you, you know what Le Chiffre has, but you don't know what Bond has. You're waiting to see Bond's moment of, you know, triumph. And another thing I just love is he, he flips the dealer 500, like a $500,000 chip, like as a tip. And the waiter does so, and, oh. and the, not the waiter, the dealer. And the dealer says, thank you. Th- thank you, sir. Like you just got a house basically. But I, right. I don't know. It's a, it's a very... It's a very theatric scene, about as theatric as you can shoot a poker scene, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think I think the the film consists of the regular theatrics that we have come to expect in Bond films. Um, but like I said, it's just it's just a different movie altogether. You don't get mm-hmm. you don't get necessarily the same feeling as you would in in something like Goldeneye. Um, I feel like as the as the bond film progressed it became the more athletic you know gradually getting more imperfect bond until we hit this bond where he's really imperfect you know he falls in love he lashes out in anger he gets hurt sometimes he nearly dies he does what? die pretty much right yeah he he goes he goes into cardiac arrest um, his heart stops beating and then Vesper actually comes and saves him. But, you know, I was just, I was really just impressed with this screenplay more than any other, any other James Bond film I had previously seen because the back and forth he has, especially with Vesper is really intelligent. She clearly is, is a very intelligent woman. I, I wrote down on, on their first back and forth, it, it's essentially a battle of wits and subtle flirting that whether Bond likes it or not, it's, it's really even. It's even. Yeah. He, he's always been able to outmatch everybody when it comes to wit. But when it comes to her, she, she really challenges him. And he likes her immediately because of this. And I wrote that he usually gets whatever woman he wants with no contest, no question. It just kind of usually happens for him. But she makes him really work for it. And he doesn't even really know that she likes him until after, you know, the whole whipping scene 
and they get out in the open on their own. And he eventually says, I don't know what his exact line is, but he says something along the lines of, oh, I didn't even really think you liked me. I, I, I thought your feelings to me were more like a loathing feeling. Yeah. And she says, she says, well, I'm, I'm a complicated woman. And I think they did a great job with her lines because they never really have given us a Bond girl that was both smart and attractive, but also actually understood what Bond was like as a person. We see Bond in previous films as a guy that's very promiscuous. He finds a girl that is obviously incredibly attractive, but doesn't have many brain cells and he's usually either using her for his own sexual desire or he's using her to get information information for something else which which he literally does earlier in the film with a separate woman yeah no um that's, yeah, because one of the one of my thoughts, I remember I wrote this down when thinking about Bester. She's less of a Bond girl and more of a more of a girl Bond. Like she's very much a female version of him. And I think, you know, I think that's part of the reason why he likes her so much in the beginning, because he, you know, he likes himself a lot and he kind of sees himself in her. And it's like whether he would admit that or not, he that's definitely one of the aspects of her that he's very attracted to. But eventually, I think it gets to the point where She's definitely using him at first because we know at the end of the movie she's in cahoots with these bad men who are trying to get money so he can she can free her boyfriend. She's not necessarily a bad person, but she is doing bad things to save somebody she loves. And at first she's just using him and leading him on. But I think at the end, I, she really does, I would say, love him. I, I think almost certainly. I'm I'm pretty confident in saying that. And that last scene with them is really, it really is heartbreaking with him trying to open the, trying to open the uh, elevator doors as hard as he can and just being completely unsuccessful. And uh, he actually gets her out and you think he's going to save her, but he doesn't. And it's, it's like, it's one of those like moments that you think it's going to be all right. But in the back of your mind, you're like, well, Bond doesn't have a girlfriend because he's never had a girlfriend. And so she kind of has to die. It's like that that relationship is fated to be doomed from the beginning. And it is. And, you know, kind of in the end, Bond very much wants to go back to his cold, calloused self. So he says, when, when M's like, I know you cared for her a lot. And he's like, I, I didn't care for her. And he said, the bitch is dead. And it's like trying to like act like he doesn't care. And then it kind of transitions into the quantum of solace, which is, I personally don't like that they did this, but sweets their own. Uh, it's it's a very jarring. Knowing that Quantum Solace starts this way, it's a very jarring way to end the movie with like the opening shot of Quantum of Solace. But it kind of starts Bond on this revenge-filled, um, revenge-filled, not revenge tour, revenge, I guess, vengeful vendetta against these people he perceives as being responsible for the only woman he ever loves death. And it kind of also going forward develops further into the deeper story of these new bond films. But um, yeah, I just, I mean, their relationship is great. I think their back and forth is amazing. And obviously that has to do 
almost entirely with the writing. Obviously, the performances are great. Ava Green is terrific. Daniel Craig is great. But yeah, I mean, I just like she's definitely different from all Bond girls, I would say. And that continues up to this point, even with some further attempts in later Bond movies. I don't think they've succeeded in making another one that's as smart or gets Bond as well as she does. No, definitely not. Um, as I talked about before, in Lazenby's Honor Majesty's Secret Service, the only film that Lazenby was actually ever in, George Lazenby was a Bond actor in just that film. He he gets married to a a woman, but like you said, Bond can never really end a film with a steady girlfriend or obviously a wife. So they're forced to kill her off because the films aren't really i want to say sequential they don't really go from one film to the next like a serial or anything they really just kind of are portions of his life with different girls in each one and you just you can't you can't be burdened with carrying that over because that's simply not bond that's not it's not who he is no matter no matter how much he really likes vesper or i forget what the what the girl's name is in honor majesty's secret service bond isn't the man to settle down that's that's one of the main points to bond he's a womanizer but like i said he he doesn't just do it for his sexual desire a lot of the times he's doing it to derive i'm sorry to um i'll just say to take out information from from a woman about most most usually her husband or boyfriend that he's planning to go up against later on in the film yeah. and of course you mentioned earlier he does this this movie in a move that i think is very different from what a previous james bond would have done i mean you know he has that beautiful woman right where he wants her but he cares way more about his job than he does being with her and he's just like and i love that line that um for two, sir, when he when he's on the phone and the kind of bellboy asks, do you want the food for two? And he says, no, for one. And he hangs up the phone and he whips out. And another moment of maybe not as much remorse as a normal person would show, but certainly a amount of remorse is when he sees her dead. And he's like, that that's certainly the first innocent that Bond's kind of escapades have caused. We're, we're assuming nobody died when he shot that gas tank at the embassy which I think is a fair assumption, but yeah, I, I just think, I mean, he kind of, he, he gets this idea, like what he does has consequences that go beyond just him and people who deserve to die in his eyes. I don't think he would have said she deserved to die just for being married to a bad guy. I mean, she didn't even know anything about his business. The only thing she knew about his business was what he told her and he didn't tell her anything. And I think that's, you know, that aspect of consequence for other people is also something that's very unique to these Bond films, I think. These, these new Bond films compared to the old ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Like you just said, these new Bond films are a whole different series, really. I feel that Connery's and Moore's were on the same level to a certain extent. They had, they had the same Bond for the most part, but like I mentioned earlier, this Bond is one that's much more athletic. They have him run around a lot more. They have him, honestly, in a lot more fight scenes rather than the Sean Connery quick 
two second things where he either shoots the guy or in Goldfinger when he tosses Odd Job's hat into into between the metal bars and then of course electrifies the metal bars, which which kills Odd Job. They, he actually Daniel Craig's Bond actually has these fight scenes right from the get go, right from the not the intro in black and white, but the the scene that he's in right after that, where he fights the 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 man with the bomb, who we find out later on works for Lashif, um, or at least with Lashif. But you know, this is just it's a whole different thing. I'll, I'll keep mentioning it because it's it's just it's just true. The whole the whole feeling of this bond and the film itself is totally separate from that of the past from those of the past because of the writing the the storyline itself and because of the directorial style from Campbell he uses a lot a lot of different shots you wouldn't you wouldn't really see bond running and the the camera staying with him the entire time or when he jumps when he jumps on the back of the truck right from the right from the beginning of the film, the back of the van, and then hops over the fence to try and apprehend the, the man he's been chasing, usually the camera would not go back and forth between the two as much as it did. And in previous in previous Bond films it wouldn't. But in Casino Royale, it's just a totally different thing. You see you see the back and forth between the two. And he doesn't make you sympathize with the villain, but he definitely makes you see his point of view. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I love that. I'm glad you brought out that scene because it's a very, first of all, it's a dynamic chase scene for sure. It's entertaining. And it's a mixture of what you see from the old Bond and the new Bond because Bond has to work for it for sure. Like he has to, I mean, he's slamming into things. He's falling over. He's getting covered in dust. I mean, he's running around in a Hawaiian shirt. You know, long gone are the days where he just kind of, you know, the monorail chase scene against Jaws when Jaws is like biting the things down. He's like, he's in a three-piece suit, like this kind of suavely moving along. You know, he's getting hurt, but he, there's still those moments of like ingenuity where like Bond does things easier than his, you know, Mark does. You know, the Mark runs into a junkyard and so Bond hijacks a freaking bulldozer not bulldozer but you know what i mean that gigantic truck and just right drives it through the place and then bond detaches the pipes so he can zoom up on the thing and i love when um it's one of the cool cooler moments when he throws when the bomb maker the first bomb maker throws the gun at him bond catches it just pegs him in the head with it it's a very i mean i think the biggest difference between these fight scenes and the older fight scenes is these fight scenes look like they hurt like a lot like the punches have weight and like everything it's just like ooh, like you you kind of flinch sometimes it's like you do these hits and like the falls he's taking like it's very they don't shy away from it and they're not like it's not like he just falls into like a like a air mattress or something like he's falling and probably really hurting himself but he keeps on going and it's just like he's less of a scalpel and more of like just a hammer. He's just going, he's just pounding, pounding, pounding away. And at the end of that scene, he 
ultimately fails. I mean, he has to shoot the bomb maker and blow up this kind of uh, like blow up this propane tank and just run away and just kind of hop around. And it's very much, I think it introduces what to expect from this new Bond movie. Like Bond can get hurt. He's not, you know, infallible at all. And you see that throughout, certainly in the other big chase scene with the other bomb maker, which I also like a lot. But I like that this Bond is a Bond who can be hurt and is hurt a lot in this movie. Definitely. You know, like we were talking about earlier, this is an imperfect Bond, much different than what we've seen before. When Roger Moore or Sean Connery took big blows, you didn't really feel the pain like you were talking about as much as you do with Daniel Craig's because they they write him well and his acting is just spectacular to be quite honest in this film he he always plays the right emotion he always seems very cool under pressure even when he's honestly getting his ass beat you still don't feel that he doesn't have it under control but you sympathize with him all the same even more so than you did with Connery's or Moore's because you don't feel that he's invincible like they were, I guess is the best way I could probably think of putting it. Um, with Connery, he's, he, in my opinion, is the best Bond. He's the most suave there is. I think they gave him a lot of great lines. And I think he just delivered them perfectly. Um, yep. I like I like Roger Moore, but I honestly have to put Daniel Craig above Roger Moore myself. I think that Craig's Bond is is just so entertaining. He's so fun. He's very smart, but he's just he's just totally different. They wrote him so differently, and I think that the new direction that they took James Bond in in the in the two thousands era is just awesome i think it was a great idea yeah i agree and like you you kind of get the sense that bond's like he's like a menace even to mi6 i mean he's everyone's like how is he doing these things and i was like how is he he's like breaking into my house and like he knows everything somehow and he's like somehow better connected than this international spy service which Maybe it's not very realistic, but it is very much like what you expect out of James Bond. I mean, James Bond, he's always one step ahead of everybody, and that includes M, that includes. But it's it's these moments where he kind of has to become, I guess, less than an agent and more than a man, where he's like, he's not quite there yet, where he's like, he's not Bond for most of this movie. I wouldn't say he's Bond until after Vesper dies and he finally kind of, I mean, he becomes determined and, you know, obviously they start playing the Bond theme as he recalls the classic line, line Bond, James Bond. And I mean, it's just when he has to kind of go rogue and this happens multiple times in the future as well, where you know, he knows what's best for the world and kind of queen and country, but not everybody isn't with him on that. And I think in the past, it was mostly, you know, he had all the support he needed and those side characters were just side characters. I think in this, you know, I mean, Judy Dench has 
has done a great job as her role as M. I mean, you know, she originally, she debuted in as M in like what, 95 with, uh, was it View to Kill? I don't remember. Uh, Golden Eye, um, but yes, 95. Go- Golden Eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she, she's been doing this for a while and you get that sense. She's been doing this for a while and Bond is, and Craig is this right. new guy. Like he's, he's the new guy in the eyes of the audience because he's a new Bond. And he's also a new guy because he's new in the sense that he just got double O status and he's just, he's already so cocky and so you know, he's doing whatever he wants to, to like do whatever he wants. He's just like, he didn't really have, he, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a different bond. He's not working with MI6. He's almost working adjacently to them at times throughout this movie. You know, that's that's a fantastic insight. I think with that, I think we could probably segue into our favorite scenes of the movies, mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, of the movie. Um, what would what would your favorite scene of the movie be if you had to pick one? It's a tough one for sure. Um, God, I really enjoyed. Uh, this is, I guess, this is also kind of an underrated scene in my eyes. I love the first main poker scene with Bond, where he's playing against Demetrius and he beats him, and he gets the Aston Martin. He gets his gets he wins his Bond car in a poker game, which is just such a Bond thing to do because it's like. It's a, it's a good hand of poker and it's fun to watch. And it's like Bond sitting there and he like, he, he just knows he has him the whole time. So he was like, give him a chance to win his money back. He puts the car in and he just, he smokes him. And I don't know. It's just, I think it encapsulates a lot about Bond where he's like, you know, he's this man, he's an international man of mystery, but he's also, you know, he's, he's very, very, very sure of himself as well. And he's just, he does what he wants on a whim, very to a very to a certain extent. So yeah, that that that's why that would be my favorite scene. Um, how about you? Um, just speaking on the scene that you were talking about, I I love that scene, and the main reason I love that scene is because of the writing, as you mentioned, a couple lines, give him a chance to win his money back, and of course Daniel Craig's giving that smug smile saying i know that i'm better than you i know that i have better cards than you right now but after they both show down bond says oh and the valet ticket and of course demetrius gives him the valet ticket reluctantly to his ashton martin and then of course he goes outside and then essentially takes demetrius's girl back to his home and gets in the little bit of information he can from her but my favorite scene is one that I think is probably incredibly underrated. My favorite scene is the shower scene with Vesper. I, I chose this scene because I think Ava Green does a, a great job with this one. Vesper's really shaken up after she sees the murder of two guys that Bond has to take care of when they go after them. Um... I wrote down when I when I was watching this scene. It's it's much more touching than any Bond scene that I've personally ever seen. Um, I said that he doesn't dare to sexualize it, like perhaps Bonds before him might have in in a shower with a woman. 
he doesn't dare sexualize it. He just wants to make sure that she's okay. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt, I felt really sure of Bond as a human being in that scene. I feel like we definitely got to know Bond much more in that scene alone, because we, as you mentioned earlier, we got to see this human side of him that we really had never experienced prior to this film. But I think when he just sits in the, in the shower with Vesper and lets her cry on his shoulder, on his shoulder after she's so, so shaken up, I think that really gives us a glimpse into, okay, the fact that this man isn't just a robot. That's not what we're trying to establish anymore. This man is sympathetic. This man is a real man. He's not just MI6's secret agent that sleeps with women for information. He he really cares about Vesper. Yeah, it's a very touching scene, and uh, yeah, that that that's also another fantastic scene. I mean, I, that's also um, that actually. Uh, a fun fact about that one originally it was um she was supposed to be sitting in the uh shower in her underwear and actually it was daniel craig who said i don't think that really makes sense with the scene because i don't think she would have changed before getting in there because it just that it's an interesting it's just a little fun fact but it is it is certainly the first you really see james bond being he's a bit of a psychopath maybe not psychopath a sociopath in this movie in that he doesn't really care about what his actions do and he kind of i think the only way he could have acted so kind of carefully towards her and so like you said not sexually at all towards her which the the scene gets a lot of flack because of the because of him um uh licking her fingers which i don't i i, I think people misinterpret that as being like him se- like advancing on her sexually when she's vulnerable. I didn't get that at all. I thought it was no. more like, I, I, I just don't understand that interpretation of it at all. I think no, that it's, it's really just him understanding because like he understands that killing is awful. And I, I think he gets that. And I think the only way he could comfort somebody like this is to understand the pain she's going through. And I think he very much does. He knows that, what he has to do is kind of a horrible thing. And, you know, before this, you would almost think that he, if not enjoyed, was completely unaffected by killing. And I think this scene proves that he isn't. And yeah, that's, that's a great pick for a favorite scene. Absolutely. And um, so, yeah, moving forward, um, I'll ask you, what, what do you think your favorite shot of the movie was? Oof, my favorite shot of the movie. You know, that's really difficult because I feel like the cinematography in this film was honestly, maybe besides Skyfall, my favorite cinematography out of any Bond film that I've ever seen. For sure. Um, gosh, I'd really have to think. <sighs> Perhaps... Perhaps when they're entering the the casino, the room where they play poker, I feel like that shot, that establishing shot of, of the room is really spectacular because you feel that they're bringing together all these powerful poker players and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. You have a feeling Bond's going to win, but you don't know. 
and you're a little unsure when Lashif comes up to him and I think he I think Bond uses the name Mr. Green. I can't remember exactly what name. name. Mr. Beach, exactly. He says, Oh, hello, Mr. Beach, or is it Mr. Bond? I, I don't I couldn't remember, something like that. And you feel a bit uneasy, but of course, Bond being cool under pressure says, Oh, well, we wouldn't want that. <laughs> and then he goes, he goes up to the bar, you know gets a drink i'm sure talks to mathis or whatever but i'd have to say that's probably my favorite shot in the film what would you say is yours yeah um that that is a great shot i i I love first of all the amount of time that must have gone into making that set was must have been absurd because it's it is very much perfect um a shot i loved it was from the opening scene it's one of those it's certainly perhaps not a Dutch angle, but very close. It's 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 low and it's pointing up at James and he's sitting in that chair. It's right after he makes his second kill. And he it's like the acting is very good because he's not smiling, but it's like it's almost like he wants to. It, it, it's just very poignant. And and the line delivery as well is great. Now that has anything to do with the shot. It's just I love it. It's just it's the first you really see Craig's face fully, clearly, and like not in action. And it's very much like it's the big reveal. It's like, this is your first, this is your guy. This is the new Bond. This is who you're getting. And I just, I love that so much. Um, yeah. 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 I Go mean, ahead. that that is a spectacular shot. I think you hit the nail right on the head. This is the first time we really see Daniel Craig and the audience thinks, oh, okay, this is, this is our new Bond. And we can feel comfortable with this bond. He he really is this suave character, this cunning character who who's just incredibly intelligent. He's he takes he takes the gun. Uh he take I'm sorry, he takes the bullets out of the man's gun and he's sitting there with that that smug look. Like you said, not as much a smile, but just the look that he's giving giving you. You just know that he's got everything under control. Um, would you, would you think that you have a, uh, a favorite line in the film? God, it's tough. Um, no, I, I mean, it, it is tough, but my favorite line has to be, um, James comes back after the fight with, uh, the, uh, um, I, I think I said Ugandan, I'm going to stick with it. Ugandan, uh, freedom fighters. And, you know, he kills them both. And he obviously has to change shirts. He comes back, he sits down. Chief says, I noticed you, you, you changed shirts, Mr. Bond. Is our competition making you perspire? Bond says, a little bit, I admit. And then he says, but I don't consider myself to be in real trouble until I start weeping blood. And I love that, that kind of, it's just like those little lines between the two. Bond's line is just so, I mean, he gets him on it. It's like these, these mind games that you are playing. It's very, I mean, it's, it's certainly funny. It paints Bond as very much a, who bond is suave and always in control of the situation um so yeah i think that would have to be my favorite line for sure you know i love that line i almost forgot about it that that quick jab at lashif he takes he loves taking these quick jabs especially in this film at his opponent and and at vesper sometimes even um so yes that is that is a fantastic back and forth between mads mickelson and daniel craig's characters 
Um, when it comes to favorite lines, I probably chose a rather unpo- uh, unpopular one, but I like it a lot. When, when Vesper offers him advice later on in the film, he says, why is it people who can't take advice always insist on giving it? I feel that this is just, this is just great writing. I don't, I don't think that we've even seen any writing like this from, from screenwriters of Bond films before this one. I think, I think that it's comical, but it's also a, a lot deeper than, than people really give it credit. Um, I think, I think that Bond is coming into his own, you know, although this is his first, his, his first, um, his first story as, as you said, with double O status, he, he still feels this strong ego. He feels like he can really, he can really say or do whatever the heck he wants. He's, he's James Bond and he knows it. Um, whether, whether you like it or not, you're getting that persona of James Bond being Bond. He is, he is the man. So when, when Ava Green's character Vesper set, gives him a piece of advice, he says, he says that line, you know, why, why do those who can't accept advice always insist on giving it? I think that was just a really, another quick jab at at her you know this back and forth banter that they have where they're subtly flirting with each other but i also had another favorite line after he returns when lashif tries to poison him he returns to the poker seat table hmm. and he says i'm sorry that last hand nearly killed me and i think i mean not only is that is that comical but it's just intelligent writing. I can't really imagine any other writers, but besides this three screenwriters, Hagis, um, Purvis, and Wade, on this one. I think the combination of the three really bring together the the new bond that we're we're going to enjoy for the next what four or five films after Casino Royale. Um. I think, I mean, I touched on everything I wanted to touch on, all the main points. Was there anything else that you wanted to touch on before we wrap this up? Uh, n- nothing that I can really think of. I just want to know, what would you rate this film out of five stars? Of course. Um, I'm actually, I'm going to give this movie two ratings because I think you have to rate it as a film in and of itself and a Bond movie. I think for a Bond movie, it's probably a four and a half. And for just a movie movie, I'd say it's probably closer to a four because, you know, I think feel like there's a different expectation for Bond movies and within the context and, and, you know, you are limited even even when this move with this movie where it is, you know, it's a different Bond movie. Certainly Bond still needs to do a certain amount of things for you to kind of, you know, get people in the seats and make people happy. And I, they, I, I wouldn't say they were enslaved to it, but I do think you, you kind of have to judge the, the movies kind of like superhero movies, like outside of the Christopher Nolan trilogy, there are other good superhero movies, but I don't think there were any, I would say are five stars, which is probably, I mean, I love James Bond, which is probably why I gave this a four star, which is 
very high for me. There are a few five stars I've ever watched, but I mean, excellent movie. The score is a little iffy at times. Um, Cinematography is great. The only reason why I wouldn't give this a five star in the realm of James Bond's movies is because there isn't, it's hard for me to say there's anything that this movie does that Skyfall doesn't do just a little bit better. I think the cinematography is a little bit better in Skyfall. The acting from Craig's a little bit better in Skyfall. The story's a little bit better. Like everything's a little bit better in Skyfall for me. And if I've never, if Skyfall never came out, this would probably be an easy five for me. But I just think because you have to stack it up against that, that's how I justify my four and a half star rating for James Bond movies. You know, I actually pretty much completely agree with you on that. When it comes to a Bond film, I'd have to put it at a 4.5 to 5 star just because we ha- we do have to compare it to our Dr. Nose, our Goldfingers, our Man with the Golden Gun, and Skyfall, of course. Um, but as a film itself, it would probably land more in the 4 range, like you said. I think that it's incredibly entertaining, I think, for for anybody. I I wrote a review on this and I gave it a four out of five stars. Um, I I said that I I really I would recommend this to to anyone. Really, mainly mainly Bond buffs and action fans. But I think if if there were if there were a random moviegoer that was looking for a good film to watch with I don't know you can watch it by yourself or with anybody else I think that this is a solid plan even if you've never seen a Bond film before this might even perhaps be the best film to start off with when it comes to Bond yeah. um I think that it, it it really does give us a completely separate Bond like we've said over and over again a completely separate Bond than one that we've ever seen in in, in the past in the past films I think that this this is a good movie, separate from being a Bond film, but as a film, it, it really is just good. It's good writing. The cinematography, like you said, is good. And the acting, especially from Daniel Craig, is actually really good. I never really thought of Craig as being an amazing actor, per se. But after seeing films like this, you know, Skyfall, um even films outside of outside of the bond series such as such as knives out you know you really you really see that this guy has talent he's not he's not just bond like perhaps a lot of people thought roger moore was roger moore he was essentially just bond he couldn't really do much else besides the bond character the only guys that have really escaped the Bond character would be Pierce Brosnan, Daniel Craig, and Sean Connery, the the greatest Bond himself, in my opinion. But I I agree with you. I think this is a good film, aside from it just being a Bond movie. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I would recommend this to anybody. I mean, anybody who, first of all, I mean, enjoys Bond movies, but I mean, enjoys action movies in general. And Right. They're, yeah, I mean, it's, if you're looking for, I don't know, I guess a, a more realistic take on an almost fantastical character, I think, I mean, this does it better than anything else. And that certainly is reflected in the box office. I mean, it's the fourth highest grossing movie of the year. Um, 
you know, it grossed an absurd amount of money. It wasn't like Skyfall money, but it was, right. you know, a good chunk of change for a Bond movie. And I think it really did expand Bond's appeal to just about everybody. I mean, anybody could go, and everybody did go to the Bond movies after these. Everyone went to Quantum of Solace, everyone went to Skyfall and Spectre. But I think this really was a reinvigoration that Bond needed. It brought Bond into the 21st century. And I think that was necessary for the character to survive. Yeah, I totally agree. It definitely has a much more modern take on James Bond as a character and any, any Bond story, a much more modern take than we've ever seen, even though there had been Bonds that had come out, um, I want to say f- within five years before this, I think. The last Pierce Brosnan was 2002, I, I believe. So I think it right. was it. So, so then it would have been what four years before. So uh, die, die another day was 2002. So yeah. Okay. So yeah, within the last four years, but I think that this one's got a much more modern take on the oldest Bond story known. So yeah, I, I really would recommend this to abs- to pretty much absolutely anybody. Um, if you're interested in, in James Bond, if you're interested in action, I think this is a good one to get you started if you've never seen a Bond film before. But yeah, I mean, I think this has really got something for everyone. All right, podcasters, that about wraps it up for us on episode two. Um, I hope you can catch us next week on Friday. We will be discussing Stanley Kubrick's famous dystopian drama a clockwork orange from 1971 starring malcolm mcdowell uh make sure you rate and review us on whatever you're listening on whether that be spotify or on on apple podcast i've been michael kenny with my co-host john salem and this has been cousins on cinema we'll see you next week